The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Chase Taub now presents his lecture, Thirsting for God. Good morning. All right. Okay. All right. Gotcha. All right. This is a heavy topic. Everyone knows which topic this is, or you just walked into a room, saw some people, and you just followed. This is a heavy topic, however you approach it. So I want to just give a couple of uh, disclaimers up front. I am not a psychiatrist, psychologist, or any type of mental health professional, although we're going to speak about that subject. Neither am I in any type of official capacity by training or certification, um, any type of addictions specialist or counselor although we're going to speak about that topic. And I should add, I'm also not a historian, although we're going to speak about that topic. So like the typical rabbi, I'm just going to speak about a bunch of stuff I know nothing about <laughs> very confidently and hope you won't fact check me. You know, <laughs> you know 68.3% of statistics cited by rabbis in speeches were made up on the spot. Did you know that? <laughs> okay. So, this is really, this is called thirsting for God. Like I said, it's a heavy topic. And it's a description of a model. I say a model, it's not the only model. A model means a way of understanding something. It's a description of a model, a way of understanding the phenomenon of addiction and the recovery from addiction. And specifically, it is linked to the origins of the 12-step approach to recovery from addiction, which originated with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1930s. And the basic premise is that addiction is a spiritual malady and that recovery is spiritual healing. So you can kind of understand now my excuse for being up here as a rabbi specifically as a Hasidic rabbi, and why anything that would put such, such a focus on spirituality would, would be of interest to me. Without going into a whole biography of myself, I'll tell you that when I first fell into the world of recovery and discovered what was going on there, I was, I was just blown away. 
because I felt I'd found, I'd found my people. Like, these are the people. Like, these are the people who get it, that spirituality is not a luxury. Spirituality isn't something you do to complete yourself or to add flair to your life or add meaning to your life. These were people who understood that a relationship with God, whether we like it or not, is vital to our personal survival. I also felt that there was something very Jewish about that. It's like, <laughs> this God guy, I don't know. I can't, shake, I can't shake him loose, can't get rid of him. Whether I like it or not, we're stuck together. And my relationship with him is like the main fact of my life. So I started to immerse myself in the world of recovery. And I'll tell you a story that happened to me, which I think is very emblematic of my whole initiation into that world, into understanding how special it really is. I actually, I write about this, this episode, I write about in my book, God of Our Understanding, which time really flies because I, I think back and I believe if my math is correct, God of Our Understanding came out 11 years ago, maybe 12 years ago at this point. Um, so this was before I even wrote that book because the story I'm about to tell you is written in the book. Basically, I'm trying to explain the idea of addicts being spiritual seekers. Even if they don't articulate, articulate it that way, even if they don't identify that way, at least not at first, at least not when they show up in the rooms for the first time, they're showing up because their life is in crisis and they're in too much pain. So they're not coming and saying, oh, you know, I'm interested in this God thing. That's, that's the bait and switch. Your life's falling apart, and then you, you, you show up, and you find there's people who have exactly what I have who are living successfully, and their secret is God. I guess I have no choice but to listen to them, right? But the idea that recovery is about spiritual growth. Really, really, the penny dropped for me. I, I went down to Florida, to Boca Raton, and I was booked for a doubleheader. I spoke in the real shul, the normal shul, mainstream shul, nice shul in Boca Raton, Florida, like regular people, Friday night, Shabbaton type setting, you know, like a regular gig. And silly me, I've learned better. You know, I've been on the speaking circuit for, you know, 15 years now. So this was, what, 12 years ago. This is my, my first few years. I thought when, uh, when a shul books a rabbi to come out and speak, they wanted you to talk about Judaism. I found out, you know, they want some Jewish jokes maybe, throw in a little Yiddish here, some Jewish cultural references, but they, 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 nobody wants intensely serious spirituality. But silly me, I went there and I gave a whole talk about the second volume of Tanya, which is called Shara Yichar Ve'amunah, which is all about the ideas, people who know what it is are laughing. It's really, it's not dinner fair for a Friday night in South Florida. So... <laughs> I get up there and I'm talking about that the world is really not a separate entity from God and it's all oneness and we are all one with God and that the ego is the EGO, the edging God out, the false sense of self, the false sense of separation from God. And they, <laughs> Needless to say, I did not captivate them with, with, this, uh, with this topic. So uh, we finished and... Uh, I walked down the hall, and uh, there was the Jewish Recovery Center was having its Friday night dinner in the library. 
Mayor Kessler was there with his group of young people from the rehabs, the local rehabs. I gave the same exact speech, literally the same exact speech. And these people are weeping. They're weeping. They're crying. And, and they come over to me afterwards and they say, you were talking to me. That's me. That's me. The, the false self. The sense of separation from God. That's me. You were talking about me. And like I said, the penny dropped because I realized, for a rabbi at least, I mean, I'm letting out my secret here to my colleagues, but if you want to go talk about spirituality to people who are going to really listen, you've got no better audience than addicts in recovery. Because like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different world. It's the difference between somebody who's looking to enhance their life, somebody who's got a good life, and I feel like maybe this religion thing, this God thing, this spirituality thing, maybe it can add meaning to my life. That's 90% of the population, the regular people, quote unquote. And then you've got, I mean, the statistics are roughly 10% of the population who are addicts of some form or another. What their drug of choice is is really irrelevant. People ask that a lot. It's really irrelevant. And you'll understand that by the time I'm done, I'm hoping. You'll understand that addiction really has nothing to do with drug of choice. It's an underlying, it's a much deeper underlying state of being. And uh, you have this 10% of the population, and for them, those who are lucky enough who have, who have found a spiritual solution to what they thought was incurable, they, uh, the spiritual message is not inspirational to them. It's not, it's not motivation for them. It's literally life and death. And especially, might I add, again, to qualify myself to be even giving this talk, especially, might I add, Jewish spirituality from a Hasidic point of view, where like I was talking about the second volume of Tanya, right? The whole thing is oneness. Oneness. It's all God. It's all oneness. That idea is an abstraction to regular people. That same idea is life and death to those fortunate people who identify as grateful addicts, grateful alcoholics, grateful because... <sighs> They have no choice but to cultivate this type of relationship with God. Okay. So let me, let me, that was all preface. Let me tell you the story. The story is a history of the 12-step model for recovery. And it goes back earlier than the actual founders, co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. It goes back to a person whose name is not that well known in history. You've probably never heard of him, unless you're an AA historian. There are a few people in the world who that's, that's what they do, that's what they specialize in. His name was Roland Hazard. Roland Hazard was a rich wasp. Everyone still knows what the word wasp means? 
right? I'm assuming in a Jewish crowd we know. <laughs> it's not a word you hear as much anymore, but I remember with my grandparents, it was always like a thing, like oh, it's a waspy place, to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So he was a rich wasp from New England, blue blood, privileged, and uh, he was a playboy and a drunk, and being that he was from privilege, when he got himself into trouble, um, what, what happened with him is they, his parents could afford the best care that money could buy. So what do you do with this kid who, he wasn't a kid, I mean, he was an adult, but he was acting like a kid. What do you do with this, this uh, perpetual adolescent who can't get his life in order? You ship him off to uh, the, the professionals. So they sent him to, well, there were the two biggest and best and well-known psychiatrists of that day in the 1930s in the world were Freud and Jung. So thank God they sent him to Jung. <laughs> because I love it, there's a Jewish crowd, you know where I'm heading. If you would have sent him to Freud, Freud was Jewish, he couldn't afford to admit how important spirituality is. Freud was, unfortunately, he battled with that. You know, that's a, the classic Jewish situation. Jews in recovery are the best. You know, it's like, ah, it's such a struggle to admit how important spirituality is. But Jung had no problem with that. So... Uh, I'll tell you the story. They shipped off Roland to Switzerland, and he spent about a year under the care of Jung. And after he was discharged, he didn't even get on the boat before he found a pub and got drunk. So he came straight back to Jung, and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly not cured over here. So Jung sort of looked disappointed. By the way, this account that I'm describing to you, this account is the account that's written in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which is colloquially referred to as the big book. And on pages 26, 27, 28 of the big book, it describes this story. Now you're going to say, how did they know what happened? You're going to find out later that the story is verified. Okay? Anyway, he spends a year under Jung's care, and he's drunk before he gets on the boat. He comes back to Jung, and he says, look what happened to me. So Jung says to him, basically, yeah, I kind of expected that to happen. He says, look, you're an alcoholic. Guys like you don't change. This is just, that's, that's the sad reality. He says, but I'll tell you something. Throughout history, there have been isolated incidents of recovery from alcoholism. And, and if I'm correct, maybe not verbatim, but Jung's words are that these occurrences are something of a phenomenon, or they are phenomena. A phenomenon is something that we know happens from time to time, but we don't know why. We know it happens, but we don't know why it happens. So Jung says throughout history, there are cases of seemingly spontaneous recovery, isolated incidents, few, 
and far between, but they do happen. They are phenomena. We know that they happen from time to time. We're not exactly sure why they happen. But I have a theory. I have a theory that what precedes these seemingly spontaneous recoveries is, and this is the exact term, a vital spiritual experience. A vital spiritual experience. And that the vital spiritual experience is so powerful that it causes vast emotional rearrangements and displacements. A fancy way of saying it just hits a person so hard that it changes their personality. It just changes who they are. And, and, and the way he describes it, he says, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the mainstays of these people, are completely replaced, they're completely transformed for new ideas, emotions, and attitudes. By the way, as a Hasidically trained rabbi, when I first read those words, I was blown away because he's describing self-transformation as the transformation of ideas, emotions, and attitudes. Do you know how Kabbalistic that is? The self, according to Kabbalah, are the ten soul powers which mirror the ten spheroids, Hashem's ten emanations. And you have three categories within that. Chabad, Chochmah bin Adas, which is ideas, the cognitive faculties. You have Chagas, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, which are the emotional faculties. And then you have Netzach, Yesod, Malchus, which are the attitudinal, the executive capacities. So when he said, ideas, emotions, and attitudes become completely transformed, I was like, yeah, that's it. That means his koichais hanafish are replaced, to use the Hasidic jargon. The point is that at that point, at, at, at that juncture, when that transformation occurs, this person no longer has to battle against the craving or the obsession. They are now a new person. Rabbi Dr. Torsky, all of a shalom, who uh, was a great influence to everybody and also gave me much of his time in order to guide me as a rabbi in this field, one of the things he told me is that he, he was sitting in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous and he was listening to an old timer share. And because of that, he understood a Rambam that he never understood before. Rambam is Maimonides. Maimonides is a great philosopher, a doctor, but also he, his major claim to fame is that he wrote the Mishnah Torah, which is the massive, exhaustive compendium of the entirety of Jewish law. Everything in Jewish law, from the ritual to, the, to, the, to civil law, to everything. There's a, there's a section in the Ramam called Hilchas Tshuva, the laws of repentance. Everything has laws to it. You have to know, what is repentance? You have to know, how, how do I know when I've done repentance? How do you know? You know how, how, how do, if, if somebody once did something and they lost credibility and they need to do repentance. How do we know they gained their credibility back? These things are subject of, of legal discussions. At any rate, so over there in the Rambam, the Rambam, Maimonides says that when a person's a true penitent, a true balchuva, someone who's truly returned, it's really, it's called, it's not penitence, it's return. Chuva means return. Returning to your, your innate state of connectedness with God. So the Rambam says when a person's truly returned, He's not the same person who sinned. So the reason he's forgiven is, it's not just like, oh, that was me, but I don't do that anymore, and now I'm forgiven because that's in my past. No, no, no. 
that's not me. So the guy who's standing before you isn't the same guy who did those things. And that's how real teshuva, real penitence or return works. So Rabbi Dr. Tversky says he's sitting in an AA meeting and he hears an old timer saying like this, very succinctly. The man I was drank. The man I was will drink again. Thank God I'm not the man I was. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a deep concept there. It's not, I used to drink, but I, now I don't. No, no, no. I was a guy who drank. That was me. I'm not that guy today. So the reason I don't drink today is not because I have better self-control, better self-discipline, all those cruel lies that if you tell it to a real alcoholic or real addict, you just increase the shame, increase the isolation. Why don't you just control yourself? Why don't you just try harder? No, it's not that I learned better how to control it. That's not me. That's not me anymore. I'm a new person. So getting back to the Jung story, how do I become a new person? So Jung is basically describing it as a, a personality transplant. And that the way we bring on the personality transplant is through a vital spiritual experience. The vital spiritual experience, vital. Vital means it's not ethereal, it's not abstract. A lot of religion and spirituality can remain very theoretical because of the due to the nature of it, due to, to, due to the very nature of spirituality, can remain very ineffable and intangible. But a vital spiritual experience means something where you feel it. You feel it in your kishkas. It's real. It's in your gut. It's visceral. I've, I didn't hear about it. I lived it. It happened to me, however you describe it. That's called a vital spiritual experience. So Jung is telling Roland Hazard that I've seen through history. There are cases of seemingly spontaneous recovery, which are phenomena to us. But my theory is that they are brought on by a vital spiritual experience, which then causes a personality transplant, as it were. And then that person is no longer battling that obsession because that obsession left with the, with the old personality. So Jung says to Roland, I've been trying to induce that in you, and clearly, I failed. That was my, that was my uh, intention, but clearly I failed. So I really don't have anything else to offer you other than the following advice. I still believe that my theory is correct. I believe that you need a vital spiritual experience. You, apparently you didn't get one from me. Go out and find one. So Roland went back to America. This is the early 1930s. And he fell in with a group of guys. He was looking for spirituality. So he fell in with a group of guys. There was a popular movement at the time called the Oxford Movement. It started in Oxford, England. And it was a group of Christians who were attempting, by their own description, they were attempting to practice first century Christianity. In other words, they were trying to go back to how Christianity was, was practiced when it first appeared on the scene. I have a, a friend who's a Jesuit uh, priest, Father Tom, and he speaks wonderfully about recovery. He speaks about AA. He speaks about Al-Anon. Anyways, so uh, he's a priest out in Oakland, California, Tom Weston. So... I, uh, I once said to him, I said, you know, the Oxford group, they were, they, were, they were onto something trying to go back to first century Christianity. They should have just gone back one more century. 
then, they would, then it would have been Judaism. <laughs> but at any rate, no. he knows I'm joking. But the, I, just to, to clarify so everybody, everyone should know this, later on, we're going to talk about how AA and the other 12-step programs emerge from this. The 12-step programs have been carefully crafted not to be affiliated with any denomination or any sect, with any official religion. And in fact, I wrote a whole book called God of Our Understanding to explain how Jewish people could find that the principles they're learning in 12-step recovery are really stuff that they were supposed to have found in the Torah and maybe it wasn't taught the right way, maybe it wasn't taught at the right time whatever the case may be, but all of these ideas, these principles of recovery, they're all, they're all in Torah, especially in, in Chassidus, in, in Hasidic teachings. At any rate, okay, so Roland gets back to uh, America and he starts to hang out with the Oxford group. Oxford group guys are just, they're into basic spirituality, prayer and meditation, restitution for harms done, Honesty, just basic good spiritual values. And uh, he starts hanging out with them and he has his vital spiritual experience. And his obsession with alcohol is removed. Not that he conquered it, not that he learned how to control it. It was removed. He had a vital spiritual experience. In, in other words, Jung was right. Jung was right. Jung couldn't induce it in him, but Jung was right about what needed to happen. So one of the things they did in the Oxford group was that if you've got it, you've got to give it away. So you have to share what you have to keep it. And, uh, well, I'm sure everyone knows that in those days especially, people traveled in very tightly knit socioeconomic demographic groups. So I told you all already that Roland was a rich wasp from New England. So when they told him to go out and spread the spread the good news, find somebody else who has your problem and, and, and share with them your solution. So who did he find? Another rich wasp from New England. But it doesn't matter because it set into motion a chain reaction which eventually got out to the whole world for people of all races and all ethnicities and all, all backgrounds. Okay, so what happened is um, there was a, a young Again, rich, blue blood, New England wasp who had been picked up on a drunk and disorderly charge and he was brought before the court and you know how these things work. The father, the judge who on the case was the father of a friend of Roland. So Roland basically said, hey, tell your father, the judge, instead of throwing the book at this kid, Look, he's an alcoholic, I was an alcoholic, let, let me take a crack at him. And so they, they allowed him to do it. Which, by the way, is a beautiful thing, and it only happened because of his privilege, but I think that should happen for everybody. <laughs> Not that it shouldn't happen to him because of his privilege, it should happen for everybody. And you're gonna see what happened. Roland was able to take a crack at this young guy, and he brought him to the Oxford group, and he had a vital spiritual experience. And he stopped drinking. Now, the name of this young man was, was Edwin Thatcher. They called him Ebby. So then they told Ebby, 
Now you got to do it. Like tag, you're it. Because Roland transmitted it to you, you've got to transmit it to somebody else. So can you think of an alcoholic? So he's like, yeah, the biggest alcoholic I know is a guy I was in World War I with. This is in the 30s, so it's like, you know, over a decade after World War I. So, uh, and these guys were in their 30s at this point. So he says, uh, the biggest alcoholic I know is a guy I served with in World War I. His name is Bill Wilson. He lives in Brooklyn. So they said, well, go, go, go visit Bill. So Abby visits Bill Wilson in, in, in his home in Brooklyn, Brownstone, Brooklyn, on Clinton Street. And uh, they have this little meeting in, uh, in his kitchen. And Abby tells... Now, first of all, what, what does Abby do? And this sort of sets the model for future, uh, what we call a 12-step call. One alcoholic sharing his message with another. First of all, in, instead of coming in and saying, hey, stop drinking, he, he kind of just starts talking about himself. Like, here's my story. Here's, here's what I was up to. Here's how far my disease had progressed. And then here's what happened to me. And then just sort of lay it out there and see if the guy has interest in saying, hey, you know, I identify. Yeah, okay, I would like the same thing. I would like what you've got. So that's what Abby did. He laid it out there, but, but Bill didn't bite at first because he's like, I don't like this. I don't like the religion idea. So Abby told him, it's not religion. You need, a, you need to have a God. You need to have a higher power. But it doesn't have to be a religious one. It could be whatever works for you. And Bill thought about that, but he did not accept it at once. Okay, so fast forward a little bit, and eventually Bill has his vital spiritual experience. And I should note that in the past, I think I've played this down for various reasons, but uh, I think this is the first time officially, publicly, I'm making a point to mention it, that Bill's vital spiritual experience occurred when he was in Towns Hospital in conjunction with, and again, I'm not going to try to make a case for causality. I'm not a mental health professional, I'm not a doctor. I'm just telling you what, and I'm, a, I'm not a historian either, but I'm telling you what's a fact and public knowledge that his vital spiritual experience coincided with, Bella, with uh, belladonna treatment, which is a, um, it's, a it's an herb, it's a, it's, a, it's a plant medicine which brings on uh, certain psychoactive effects. So I, I, I used to play that down because I didn't want to confuse the issue. But I think it's, it's worth mentioning because I think they're discovering more and more that there may be a place for that. So I just, for the record, I wanted to put that out there. The point is that Bill had a vital spiritual experience and he felt that he had been touched by a power greater than himself. And from that day, that's it. The desire to drink left him. And immediately, what did he do? he started to throw himself into activism because he knew what worked for the two people, you know, the chain, Roland to Abby, Abby to him. He understood that you had to give it away. So he was running around bringing in all the Skid Row winos into his home, and that's what kept him active and it kept him sober. Now, about a half a year sober, he was on a business trip to Akron, Ohio. And... Uh, he was away from his activism. His home became like a, like a soup kitchen, basically. And uh, 
he was in Akron, Ohio, and he felt himself, he was in the Mayflower Hotel, and he was pacing around the lobby, he felt himself sort of getting weak. And he realized the reason he was getting weak is because he was away from his, his activism. He wasn't in a, in, a, in a place to be helpful to others, and he was getting back into self. Again, we can sort of go back and reverse engineer it and, and analyze what happened, is that you know, he was in early recovery, he had a spiritual experience, he was able to transcend ego a little bit, but there he was in a situation where he didn't have the ability to go out and help people. When you're helping people, you're actively going out and helping them, you know, that, that's a very direct and potent way to, to get into self-transcendence. And here he, here, here he is on a business trip where you have to like sort of think about what you're trying to accomplish and your agenda. Spiritual business trips is like pro-level. I mean, I mean we, we talk about this. We do this. And there, that's like a high-level, advanced-level move is that you can go on a business trip, and the business trip can be spiritual. But talk about a guy in early recovery. His whole recovery was about helping others, helping drunks, and now he's on a business trip. He's sort of getting back into self, and the self is that separation from the oneness, and the, the disease is, 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 is creeping back up on him. Anyways, he knew right away what he had to do. He knew he had to help a drunk, but he doesn't know anyone in Akron. So what did he do? There's no Google. What did he do? He goes into the phone booth in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. There's a church registry, a list of local churches. So he figures, you know, churches can be helpful. He starts calling them up and asking whoever answers the phone. He says, hi, I'm a guy from Brooklyn. I have, a, I have something that helps alcoholics. Do you know any alcoholics? I don't know how many people he called. I don't remember if it's, a, if it's public knowledge or not, how many calls he made. I know eventually somebody tipped him off and said, you should see Dr. Bob, Bob Smith. He's a big, big, big alcoholic. And uh, nobody can do anything with him. Go, go talk to him. So Bill met Bob. And Bill did the same thing with Bob that Abby had done with him, meaning he didn't go in there and say, hey, I heard you have a problem. Hey, they told me you're a big drinker. Bill did the exact same thing Abby did with him. When Abby came to Bill, Abby spoke about himself. Bill did the same thing when he spoke to Bob. He just spoke about himself. He said, this is my story. This is how I drank. And Bob was listening. He was like, yeah, I get that. that I relate to that. Yeah, I drink like that. Yeah, I have those feelings. Yeah, I totally get it. And then he told him, it's spiritual, a spiritual experience. And Bob was skeptical for a different reason, by the way, because he'd been religious. I think this is very important to bring out. Bill was skeptical of the spiritual solution because he was anti-religion at the time. Bob was skeptical of it because he was pro-religion. He said, if, it, if it's spiritual, how come it didn't happen for me? I'm religious. Now, just pause this story for a second. As a rabbi who gets, I mean, again, I told you, I'm not an expert. I'm not a... Not an addictions counselor, but I wrote a book, and I get calls. People call me all the time, and a disproportionate amount of people who call me are religious. And would you believe not only are they religious, but they are the people who represent religion, rabbis. And uh, and I tell them, you know, like this is this is the thing, this is spirituality, and they're like, if it's spirituality, then it should have already kicked in for me because. 
And uh, without getting into a whole lengthy explanation, but I'll just go back to those words, vital spiritual experience. There are a lot of people who are religious. And it's a good thing. Religion is good. I mean, in the Alcoholics Anonymous text, it encourages people, if you it won't prescribe any religious rituals or rites because it's non-sectarian, but it says if you belong to a religion that has uh, prayer services, you should go to the prayer services. You should go, go to your place of worship. Talk to your clergy. So it very much encourages people to be involved in religion. Religion's great, but here's the thing. It's not a guarantee of a vital spiritual experience. Just not. Now, when a religious person has their vital spiritual experience and then they go back and they plug that into their religion, whoa, then they're on fire. Then they're on fire. But unfortunately, we have a lot of people who have been educated, thoroughly educated in their religion. They have not had a vital spiritual experience. And the main reason I'm saying this is because if this has been your experience, I want you to know that maybe, just maybe, even if you're religious, even if you have faith, even if you feel that you have a relationship with God, everyone really does, we all have a relationship with God, even if it's not a good one. Even if you feel all those things, even if you feel you have a good relationship with God, what I'm telling you is be open to the idea that it could be more potent, more tangible, more visceral. And my, my strongest argument for the possibility that that could be the case is that you're a religious person, you have morals and values, and you do things that betray your own morals and values. And I'm not saying, I don't want to say that to shame people because that's part of the problem. It's, that's, that only makes things worse. I'm saying that empathetically, I'm saying compassionately, I'm saying <sighs> clearly there's something, there's a stronger medicine. There's a, there's a way of upping the dosage. And, and if you can be open to finding people and being humble, and, and finding people who've had that vital spiritual experience and just listening to them, just listening to them. And their vital spiritual experience will not be yours. It will not be yours because the nature of the infinite is that the infinite God relates in a unique way to every single one of his children. So your vital spiritual experience will not exactly occur in the same way under the same circumstances as somebody else's. But hearing about it, knowing that it's a real thing, especially if you're a religious person and you're already sort of burnt out and you think, what more could there be? I'm already sort of you know, uh, spinning my wheels over here on the God thing. Trust me, it's happened and it happens. It happens every day that religious people find God. They thought they had God, then they really find God. So Dr. Bob was skeptical. He says, you know, I, I'm into religion. And uh, Bill told him, and, I, and, and, and nevertheless, I think that this, 
spiritual solution is for you, and it's a really simple spiritual solution. It's not so highfalutin. It's not so technical. It's simple stuff. It's simple stuff. It's like honesty and humility and making restitution for any wrongs you've done. And basically, Bill ran Bob through a primitive version of the 12-step program. I'm going to editorialize for a moment, but today a lot of times you see people taking years to do their step work. In Akron, when Bill introduced Bob to it, it was a matter of days. And my, I, I, I want to, again, I'm editorializing here for a moment, but I just want to appeal to everybody and, and tell you one thing. And if this doesn't make sense to you, that's fine. This is for the people to whom it needs to make sense. You know the, the most dangerous thing about 12-step recovery is that the fellowship is so good, meaning the safety and the the security of being able to be vulnerable in a room full of people is so good that you could almost feel like that's all you need. And what happens is people find that gift of fellowship and they don't work the program. They don't work the steps. They don't do the work that leads to the transformation. I tell Jewish people that that's like somebody who only shows up to shul for the kiddush to schmooze, they skip davening, and they just come to kiddush to schmooze, and they're like, hey, how come uh, I'm not finding God over here? Well, the kiddush is great, and schmoozing is great, but you got to come to daven. So they ran him through the steps, and he had a vital spiritual experience, and then what did they do? Of course, you can guess. What did they do? What do you think the first order of business was? Hmm? I can't hear. What did they do after Bob had his vital spiritual experience and he stopped drinking? They got another guy. That's right. That's right. They got another guy. So they found, they, they went to the hospital. They found this Kentucky lawyer named Bill Dodson and uh, the famous painting called The Man on the Bed. So Bill and Bob come to the hospital and they meet Bill D. And they tell him the same exact thing, the spiritual experience. And, and, and Bill D's skepticism was, was, was of a different variety. He said, well, I was raised religious, and I'm like, I'm over all of that stuff. But uh, then they said, well, do you think you could believe that a power greater than yourself could be the solution? He's like, you know what, why the heck not? You know? and, and see, that's the beauty also of dealing with people who have hit bottom, because it's like, <laughs> why not? Abba Ibn, the uh, diplomat, the ambassador, politician. So he had a great line about, um, about politics. He said, nations are just like people. They tend to act rationally after they've exhausted all other possibilities. <laughs> so <laughs> you're talking to someone who's hit rock bottom. You know, okay, why not? Let's, let's, get, let's give this thing a whirl. Anyway, they were just like this one person to another person to another person building by word of mouth. 
and then they had groups in Akron and then in Brooklyn, because Bill went back to Brooklyn. So he had a group in Brooklyn, and there was the group in Akron, and then there was a group in Cleveland, and then it started slowly building up. And when people would hear about it, um, they would write in to the AA offices, and they'd be given <laughs> a stack of index cards. These are the other alcoholics in your area who've inquired. Go visit them. Like, me? What do I? Right? So it was very much like training on the job. And you're kidding. I was just told five minutes. Okay, I got five minutes here. That came as a surprise. Long story short, one person to another person to another person, and within a relatively short amount of time, this movement becomes worldwide. And starting from Roland Hazard to Abby Thatcher to Bill W to, to Bob Smith to Bill Dodson, now they've got like a million people, and it's crazy. Like the success of the 12-step program and Alcoholics Anonymous is just unparalleled, unparalleled growth and success. At any rate, it's January 1961, and they're sitting around AA World Services in Manhattan in the office there, and somebody says, hey, you know how our entire thing originates from Carl Jung? And they're like, yeah, sure. Did anyone ever tell Carl Jung? <laughs> so they're like, you know, it's a bunch of alcoholics. They're like, no, we never told, we never told Carl Jung. So Bill W. sits down and he writes a letter to Carl Jung, January of 1961. And he basically says, remember this guy Roland, this rich kid who came to visit you, this American kid, and you sent them back, you told him to get a vital spiritual experience. Well, he had one. He found the Oxford group, and then he met a guy who met me, and I met a guy, and now there's a million of us. So, and can you imagine, from Jung's perspective, as a man of science, having this theory, and remember, when he shared it with Roland, it was like this secret theory. And then, and then finding out as a man of science that your theory had been tested out on a sample size of a million people. It's like, wow, amazing, amazing. So Jung writes back a week later. Let's see here. Jung wrote that, there's the letter on the, in the slide. Jung writes back a week later, uh, January 30th, 1961. And he confirms that the story is all correct. That's how, remember I told you earlier, how do we know the story is even correct? Jung, he, he verifies. He says, yeah, that's the story. That's what happened. He says, but there's more to the story. There's more to the story that you don't know. I'm going to sort of zoom in here. He says, there's, there's more to the story than you know. So he says, dear Mr. Wilson, your letter has been very welcome indeed. I had no news from Roland H. anymore and often wondered what has been his fate. Our conversation, which he has adequately reported to you, had an aspect of which he did not know. Okay, here is the, like Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Something he did not know. The reason that I could not tell him everything was that those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way. In other words... Jung was saying, this was my pet theory, the, the theory that alcoholism can be cured through spirituality. I didn't want to tell anyone because they would call me a crackpot. So I was very guarded about that, and I almost didn't tell him. 
You understand how close this whole thing came to never happening. All that we call a hashkacha pratis, divine providence, that happened here from one person meeting another person meeting another person, but it started from a moment of divine providence where Jung made the judgment call to share something with this young man that he wasn't even sure he should be sharing. Let me continue here. The reason that I could not tell him everything was that those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way. Thus, I was very careful when I talked to Roland H. But what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. Here's the bombshell. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness expressed in medieval language, the union with God. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? I'm just going to reread those two lines. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, expressed in medieval language, the union with God. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? So you see here, cognizant of the time. We have a formulation from one of the fathers of modern psychoanalysis summing up in a sentence the pathology of addiction. What is it? In the words of Carl Jung, it is a thirst for God. The alcoholic, the addict might not identify, surely will not identify it as a thirst for God. And not God as a, you know, the man in the robe in the sky. God as a sense of oneness, union, unity, oneness. See, the, the, the addict, the alcoholic is living a life of separation. Constantly, you know, what we call terminal uniqueness. Lonely in a crowded room. Always wanting to be a part of and instead feeling apart from. And, and what is the underlying solution to all of that? And why are they self-medicating to distract themselves from, from that existential angst? To numb themselves from the pain of God's separation. So when you give the addict the oneness that they're craving, then the obsession to self-medicate is completely obviated. Now, I just want to point out, you notice there's a little handwritten footnote there. There's one footnote here. You notice there's a handwritten footnote where Jung mentions the thirst, the craving for God. Tiny little footnote there. So what's on the bottom? On the bottom there, he quotes the words of King David from Psalms. He, Jung, uses the King James English. But the words mean, like the deer is panting thirstily by the water brook, so does my soul yearn for you, O God. The disease of addiction is ka'ayel tarek. Ka'ayel tarek, the thirst for oneness, the thirst for unity. And the knowledge that that's what it is changes everything we know about the disease, and more importantly, everything we know about the solution.
Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.